Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast. A podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Till Luca. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. Practitioner. Hello, Till Luca here. When I was looking for a publisher for a book that I wanted to write, I was lucky enough to have had two offers, one from a large international media conglomerate and the other from Handspring Publishing, a small publisher in Scotland run by four great people. And I'm glad I chose them, Handspring, as not only did they help me make the books that I wanted to share, the Advanced Myofascial Technique series, but their catalog has emerged as one of the leading collections of professional-level books written especially for body workers, movement teachers, and all professionals who use movement or touch to help patients achieve wellness. And I'm Whitney Lowe. Thanks very much for that, Till. And also, Handsprings um, has a new webinar series called Move to Learn. It's a series of 45-minute segments featuring their authors, including a recent one from Till. So head on over to their website at handspringpublishing.com to check those out. And while you're over there, be sure to use the code TTP at checkout for a discount. Thanks again, Handspring, for your support of the podcast. So, uh, hello, Till. How are you today? It is a cold, sort of blustery day here in Central Oregon. How are things out in the Front Range? Here at Front Range in Colorado, it's yeah. a winter day. We're getting snow and it is cold. Mm-hmm. My uh, my son's visiting from Canada, and he says, "Boy, it's cold here." Oh, and then, yeah. and so then we we're uh, also trying to figure out how to get uh, together. So we were going to have an outdoor dinner, but now with this this uh, you know single digit temperature, or whatever, I don't know if we're going to do that. Yeah. So time for the Zoom holiday festivities. Oh, kind of like, yeah, <laughs> I think right. people are really getting zoomed out. But that's sort of uh, what we're what we're up to in in a lot of instances here. So uh, yeah, that glass is half full. Yeah, at least you know. And you know, this has uh, been quite a year, and uh, you and I decided to talk about the year here in today's episode to go back and look at some of the topics. Mm-hmm. Yep. It has been um, just about, it's been an interesting year and uh, about a year since we started the podcast. So we've been uh, going down the road for about a year on this um, this venture. So it's been, uh, I think, a great deal of fun. And we thought it would be interesting to take a look back and reflect on some of the things that we had learned, discovered, and, uh, and that we've heard about from everybody uh, in the time being here. Yeah. Best, best greatest hits of our first season. So, yeah. you know, we're going to go back and kind of review the topics, update uh, and maybe give you, the listener, a chance to go back and target the ones that you didn't listen to because we've been putting them out just about every couple of weeks. So mm-hmm. you know, many, most people haven't listened to them all, but this was a chance to get a preview or a review, as it were. Yeah. Yep, indeed. So um, so where do we start here? I guess we start well, at the beginning, huh? Yeah, or- the beginning was you and I kind of interviewed each other in the first couple episodes in the backstory episodes where I got your backstory, you got mine, and it was great. I, I learned some stuff about you because, you know, honestly, we didn't know each other that well. Yeah. And uh, it gave a great groundwork for understanding both your perspective, mm-hmm. and it was kind of fun to answer your questions and talk about mine. Yeah. Yeah. And I think fun for both of us to realize the places that we had a lot of similarities and and places where our paths had sort of academically and virtually crossed in the past and and how they've led to our our current perspectives on on a lot of the other topics and things that we tackled here. So, um, you know, always helpful to have have an understanding of where the lens is that we're looking through. That's right. And so have you updated your biography at all? Have you gone back and done any revisions since we talked? 
Uh, not that I can think of. Yeah. All right. <laughs> like <laughs> revising my bio- biography, like changing my history or, or there you like, go. Like yeah. Why not? Uh, yeah. Um, no, but it's a good idea. Maybe I'll do that. That'll be my New Year's resolution. So yes, it. Well, we're writing history as we as we uh, move forward. So there's always yeah, always that opportunity. We dove right into sacroiliac pain in episode number three. Sacroiliac joint pain causes controversies and considerations. We said, and that was uh, a look at the controversies around sacroiliac joint pain and the idea that. Um, when it hurts, that may or there's evidence that it's not really related to mobility, you could say, or stiffness, that those are independent variables, which flies in the face from the way I was trained and that, you know, our kind of instinctive uh, tendencies as manual therapists to feel something that's stiff or tight and to think that if we loosen it up, it's going to feel better. But then it also flies in the face of kind of conventional sacroiliac joint wisdom that says if it's hypermobile, it's going to hurt too. And it turns out that neither one of those is statistically replicable. I couldn't find that relationship there. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of interest in this topic. This actually, um, if we go back and look at our podcast statistics, this episode has landed at the top of the download list. So I think uh, lots of other people have been interested in these ideas. And one of the things that you said here too is, is really relevant that um, a lot of people in sort of the manual therapy fields may not be thinking about or aware of, but there is a, there is a, a predominant, um, I, I guess I most uh, frequently refer to this as a, a uh, perceptual bias, I oh. think, from many of the other fields in manual therapy toward joint disorders um, as the cause of many types of pain or uh, pain complaints or dysfunction. And so looking at the structure uh, and position of the sacroiliac joint has been a keystone in many, many different manual therapy fields. And I think now, you know, based on some of the stuff that we were talking about here, it's not as easy uh, to, to to paint that picture as we once thought it was, because there's a lot of things that seemed, as you mentioned, to be um, inconsistent in looking at position, uh, you know, and alignment issues and all kinds of other things. There's a lot of, a uh, lot of other factors in there. Oh yeah. I, uh, that's, that's water way under my own bridge in terms of the yeah. practitioner, even the position question. Yeah. I, that's the way I was trained. That's the way I practiced for a long time. But then at some point I go, Whoa, this just, I just doesn't make sense to me, the position thing. But so then going to movement is typically a much clearer lens for me in most other parts of the body. But then it turns out in the sacroiliac joint, uh, there's a there's one study that's been kind of influential that says if the left and right sides are uneven in their movement, those people tend to have more symptoms. But that's just one study because otherwise it's been really hard to find a correlation. Like forget it, like you said, with position, upslope, downslope, yeah. that kind of stuff. But yeah. even uh, movement differences, like it's there's a whole lot of disagreement about how much it moves, and it doesn't seem that people that move a lot have more pain. It doesn't seem that people that move a little have more pain. Yeah. Go figure. This seems to be the pain is its own thing, and then we we can work with it. Yeah. No one's questioning that, but yeah, our our stories, our narratives about the mechanisms need some serious re- revising there. And one of the most important things I think uh, takeaways on this, and this you know I see this debated a good bit in some of the social media posts uh, when there's a lot of debate, especially around the idea of what many people call structuralism or the the focus on on structure that. Uh, you know, uh, alignment problems, as we're noting here, may not necessarily correlate well with certain pain complaints. And for that reason, we can't uh, always uh, think that they are the cause of a particular pain complaint. But that also does not mean that they're not. 
Um, uh, and we, that's an important thing to remember is that, yeah, they may be an issue and they may not be an issue, but it's, uh, it's not a, an, an absolute cause effects just because something's there that it's the cause. Um, and that's, that's a sticky one for, for people to kind of discern because then you're, you're left sort of like looking and saying, well, hey, what well, does? It's one, yeah, one possible contributor rather than being mm -hmm. the main lens or main focus. Yeah. And it's not as nihilistic as it sounds. It's not as just like anything is okay and nothing matters as it sounds. It's really not like that. It's mm -hmm. more like, okay, so let's not assume that just because there's a positional difference or movement difference, that that is the cause of someone's pain. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, so where does that take us? Um, where we ventured, we looked at some challenges facing our field yes, after that. that's right. right. Episodes yeah. four, and then we went back to it in episode eight. We kind of broke it into two parts because we had a lot of challenges we wanted to talk about. Uh, if I remember right, yours was what you call the split personality of the profession. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What was that? Well, this is something I, you know, have been on the soapbox about for years, just talking about the fact that at least in the, in the massage therapy field, which is my lens of bias, that we are a field that is focused on, uh, for lack of a better term, you know, two different uh, sort of uh, tracks, one being the more personal care service, which is massage uh, when it is in um, sort of non-healthcare settings like spas and cruise ships and salons and things like that, mainly for personal well-being and enhancement. And then there is the massage as healthcare, which is um, the big question about the role that we may play as a healthcare, potential healthcare professional. And we just don't do an adequate job of training at the entry level for both those tracks because there's different needs on those tracks. But this has been a big constant tug, I think, within our profession for for decades, obviously, and uh, careening towards having to do something about it at some point. Well, then you and Cal were talking about that in our last episode. Yes. Uh -huh. uh, you got to unfold that some more and update us some, and I think that would have been uh, 28, so skipping ahead a little bit, episode yeah. 28, you did some of that yep. too. Yep, yeah, we were talking about the same thing again there in, in a different uh, different perspective, but uh, yeah, and uh and what were you um, focusing on highlighting with some of your key challenges? There? Yeah, I really thought about the fact that uh, maybe I was speaking personally, but I really thought about the fact that we are aging, you mm -hmm. know, as a, as a field. Yeah. There is a, a, the practitioner base is aging. So is the population. And that presents some interesting transitions and challenges. And we spoke about that some on that episode. And then I also talked about the epidemic of over busyness. Yeah. This is, mm -hmm. uh, you know. It's just everyone was so full. This was, uh, was this pre-COVID? That, that it was. Yep. It was. Who knew that yeah. things were about to change in that sense? Yes, indeed. Yeah. We've gotten back to the norm of over-busyness since then. But there was a period there where it looked like we had a different epidemic coming in. Yeah. Before COVID, people were complaining about too busy, and then uh -huh. they weren't. And then when, like, the universe heard that complaint, said, okay, we'll do something about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mentioned I mentioned episode eight uh, as the other yeah. one. So that we're going a little bit out of numerical order. But in that yeah. one, you, you talked about increasing the accuracy of our explanations. So you saw that as a challenge or almost a crisis facing us. Yeah, I think it's something that we're seeing a whole lot more of. And I'm, I'm really glad about that. But that also creates a lot of problems because our, our sort of educational system is set up as, as one where there's more, it's more about narratives passed down from mentor to mentee than it is a sort of a traditional academic model. So we don't always take really well to having things challenged from our teachers um, or the the specialists or the gurus and the, the people in the field. And so 
but we're at a point now where more and more people are coming into our field and, and asking really good penetrating and critical questions about what we do and how what we do works and all that kind of stuff. And I think that's great. Uh, and it also poses some challenges for us. Mm-hmm. It does. Yeah. It really does. My, I mean, what a tradition we have and what a chance to move beyond it. And yeah, there is a lot of turmoil around that question too. What is the role of, say, the oral tradition or the wisdom tradition, which can focus around personalities in our field? And what yeah. is the role of increasing our standards, our consistency, our academic uh, depth, intellectual basis for the work we do, say? Yeah. My, my uh, episode eight challenge was the polarization, divisiveness, and infighting within our profession and how that was mirroring what was happening in the country and perhaps the world. Yeah. And I, yeah. I have grave concerns about that still, of course. I think yeah. it's the biggest crisis facing us. And I wish I could update us and say it's gotten better. But uh, if anything, it's only I'm only looking at it differently because it seems uh, at this point to be a feature of our landscape. So it's yeah. more like, I think I'm less optimistically hopeful that it'll change and more optimistic. If I have some optimism, it's that we'll figure out at least how to live with the fact that we are so divided. We're so split. Yeah. yeah. You know, when we, we see, we talk about those kind of pendulum swings, uh, social pendulum swings that move from one side to the other. It makes me wonder, I mean, will I, I probably won't be around long enough to see us move into a culture that is less polarized. Uh, I have a feeling we're going to be this way for a while, but I know we have historically within uh, at least our country had these, some of these different shifts where there's incredible polarization and then yeah. some coming back together at different times. So I certainly, certainly can hope that I did have to chuckle the other day. I was looking at, I was reading a, a Facebook stream and there was a, a physical therapy uh, forum that I uh, listened to or I'm subscribed to. And somebody posted a message on there said, uh, do you all find or there's people in other professions besides ours that are constantly, you know, backbiting and polarizing and you know, shouting at each other on social media? Mm-hmm. And a couple of people said, like, what group doesn't? You yes. know, right? Now? It just seems to be a. It's not That's certainly right. unique to us. It seems to be uh, prevalent pretty much everywhere. Yeah, I think maybe that is at the root of the new optimism. Perhaps I'm growing towards is just that that is the way things work, and as painful as it is. That's uh, that's the natural order of things in some ways. Yeah, and unfortunately, I think a lot of times what it is that brings us out of those is tremendous tragedy. Where yeah, we that's, been, that's been true together. too. That's right. Yeah, and so um, I'd love to think, for example, our current global health tragedy would be the kind of thing that would pull us together. But it seems to be ripping us apart, also in many uh, right. many states. So right. uh, hard to know. Maybe together no isn't the goal. Maybe together yeah. isn't well. Maybe it's like, how do we be apart or live apart or have different apart views? Well, how do mm-hmm. we, you know, who knows that? Yeah. So, well, on that note, yeah. Uh, so- episode five was uh, documentation in electronic health records. You talked to Diana Thompson. What did you guys yeah, so talk about? This is a solo interview I did with Diana Thompson, one of my dear friends for so many years. And um, she's been such a, a groundbreaker in. Um, putting forth, uh, you know, things to, to help us do accurate, you know, get more accurate with what we're doing as healthcare professionals in the documentation process. And we were talking a bit about uh, the move towards electronic health records. She's been, you know, she wrote that book on soap notes many years ago, which has become sort of like a, uh, a main text in our field for a long time and got people focusing on the importance of documentation and health records. And again, this is focusing a bit, uh, she and I talked a little bit about that sort of split 
personality of the profession and for those that are working along the realm of of being healthcare professionals, how crucial and important it is for us to learn how to communicate with other health professionals because we don't get trained in the same environment that they do. Um, and there's a lot of a lot of things that need to happen, I think, in our uh, world about interprofessional education. That means, for example, learning a lot more about what other people do. Um, and so, like, if we say we may want to re you know, refer to another health professional, what does an acupuncturist do? What does a chiropractor do? Or what does a, an, an osteopath or a you know, some other type of manual therapy practitioner, what does a Feldenkrais practitioner do? So uh, the importance of, of understanding some of those um, capacities of other health professionals is really an important part of us building a network of people that will be helpful for us uh, as practitioners, I think. Mm. So, Episode yeah. six, tendons and tendinopathies. Uh, we, oh, I remember a couple of things from that. What, do you remember anything? I do remember some things, especially having to do with the um, preparation work and study. You know, we, we do some prep work before we get going on this. And some of the things that uh, we were reading based on this were, um, again, as in many other instances, sort of shaking some of my uh, long-held both beliefs and uh, teaching strategies and things that I've been focusing on uh, about uh, tendinopathies and, and especially uh, the emphasis now seeming to be so much more on push those tendons in the rehabilitation load. process, load, load them. You know, right. like we were trying for so many years, like rest them, you know, yes. friction them and do these other things, but, you know, let Put them rest. On them. Yeah, right. And so uh, that's been a big paradigm shift for me and a, a bit more of a, a challenging one to, to get uh, working with. Well, so, there's uh, also the, I mean, for me, training as a rolfer, it was, if it's inflammatory, don't rolf it, don't work on yeah. it. Yeah, and uh, I'm not. I wouldn't say that I'm questioning the don't Rolf it thing, but I'm saying you. There's a lot of direct work we can do with tendons and tendinopathies, yeah. even things that are inflamed. And so that was an entry point for me into the whole inflammatory story. Yeah, which uh, we came back to. I'll, maybe I'll mention that now. Is that all right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And episode thirteen. Yeah, yeah, that was really a continuation. That's kind of you know the inflammation has been a pet. Uh, project of mine to understand. And, and we skipped ahead to episode 13, where we really looked at how you, you can't rub inflammation better, but you can help. There's a lot of ways you can help with inflammatory conditions, including tendinopathies mm -hmm. uh, with your hands and, with, and in that context of a hands-on bodywork session. And there are things that you wouldn't even expect. Yeah. So Packed that a little bit there. Yeah. And, you know, I, as I was looking over our list of things, one of the things that I was trying to focus on as I, as I was looking at this list is like, well, what, you know, f well, why did we do this whole podcast in the, in, at the beginning to begin with? And a lot of it was, you know, I wanted to learn more. Um, yeah. This yeah. is a great example of that is that I learned a lot from you in that episode about oh. some of these newer perspectives on, on inflammation and some different ways to, to sort of focus on this. And this has been really valuable for me in, in that respect. Well, that's kind of you to say. I've been learning a lot too. Yeah, I mean, some of the stuff you bring in, but then, of course, yeah, our conversations. But you know, honestly, having this uh, deadline to have to go get caught up on some stuff to have something uh, that I can stand behind and put on recording and have out there—that's a good practice for me to get me to you know, keep updated and as much as I can. It is, yeah, but, absolutely, yes, yeah, and so uh, we. Went from there to, to scoliosis and manual therapy, and in episode seven, where I, I uh, we talked about scoliosis uh, and how manual therapy 
might help with it. Or even the question of uh, why do we assume we need to help it? Yeah. Because in so many cases, scoliosis is not a painful condition. turns out that back pain is not more common in moderate to mild scoliosis than it is in people without that. So, and there's certainly a point at which scoliosis gets so severe that it can it can um, uh, be correlated with uh, pain, but also with organ compromise, or it's harder to breathe too if you have a lot of scoliosis. So, at some point, it's obviously a mechanical issue, but in the mild to moderate range, pain is not more common. It turns out. So yes. Yeah. That question, how you know, if it's not broken, then why do we fix it? Or how can we help people be comfortable and continue to lead? Uh, active, satisfying, comfortable lives with what we do rather than just trying to iron them straight. Yeah. And I do think this is another example of one of those things that's um, a question that a lot of people are probably asking themselves a little bit too, because this did turn out to be one of our, another one of our very most popular episodes. Oh, that's, that's, a, that's interesting. Downloads. Yeah. Um, because I think a lot of people are asking those questions. And again, we're, we're sort of coming up against that issue of, of structuralism, which has been so embedded in manual therapy for a long time. Something's not straight. You got to fix it. Um, and uh-huh. okay. we're really asking those questions. Well, maybe, maybe not. You know, um, so um, a really yeah, good and when and when debate. when should you or and how should you? Because what are the yeah. what are the limits of straightening? How effective are we at that anyway? But then also, what are some of the strategies that do help people experience you know live more comfortably and things like that? Or yeah. what are the what are the times? And so I remember one of the key points in that episode too was the age window when. There's times in the development where it's pretty clearly uh, accepted and shown that interventions during this window will have lasting improvement, lasting effect. And, uh, yeah. you know, so don't miss those windows right around puberty. Couple yeah, years from puberty. yeah. Yeah. So, uh, well, after that, we moved into um, one of my Descend- favorite episodes. Uh, Which was one our- was it? Descending Modulation? Yeah, yeah. This is a topic I have loved to sort of delve into in the last several years, uh, trying to get at the root of uh, what the heck are we doing, <laughs> you know? And so, what the heck uh, is we doing? What the heck is descending modulation anyway? Yeah. How would you? What's the quick definition of that, Brittany? Yeah. So uh, essentially, the quick definition is that there are uh, neural impulses that go from the higher brain centers down that may modulate or either ramp up or ramp down the intensity of nociceptive signals that then get interpreted as pain. And we can uh, help facilitate that process uh, in many instances, trying to tamp down those those sensations so that they are not as intense uh, and decrease and help in decreasing the pain process. But uh, there's other things that may also ramp them up that we can help encourage our clients to become aware of. So um, we sort of base this episode on an article from Mark Olson that had appeared in, um, I believe it was uh, one of the uh, other massage, the online massage and body work. Um, uh, it's escaping me at the moment here. The uh, publication that 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 article ori- originally appeared in. Uh, do you Wish remember I where could that? Help you. No, I'm yeah. sorry. I remember the article. I don't remember the publication. Yeah. So um, anyway, a uh, great article, and he had put together what I thought was one of the best descriptions of that. Uh, whole concept of descending modulation. Well, I got to say, yo, kudos to you, Mark, if you ever hear this, uh, or if you haven't read it, go check it out. He did a really good job and it's linked in the show notes there. It it would, I could say that it is from, what's the opposite of a structuralism point of view? 
neurocentrist. Yeah. Is, that the, is that the term that we're using? Perhaps, yeah. yeah. You could say that the bias comes through pretty clearly there. And, you know, we, I, we all have our biases. So there might be some interesting um, rebuttals, you could say, or modifications on that point of view. I don't have it right here in front of me, but that would be an interesting revisit to that as well. But yeah. th that said, uh, I, it's, a, it's a concept that I've found really useful, the concept of descending modulation, the way that pain is changed from the top down, not just from the bottom up, not just from the periphery end, but from the what are, is happening in our brain and in our nervous system as well. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, our, our discussion there was in a, a sort of a, a, we set up essentially a, a um, segue into talking about tissues and how they function in the next episode of, of yeah. asking when does the tissue matter? Because we've focused a lot on, um, you know, tissue results for so many years. And now we've sort of gone on a pendulum swim and look at a lot of other things in the neurological realm. But um, the question comes up for a lot of people like, do they, you know, matter and to what, uh, to what extent they do? What did we decide? What did we determine? Do they matter? Well, we certainly got. I, know, I noticed that we got a good bit of feedback on this on this episode. <laughs> some some uh, this touched a couple nerves on on some people. Uh, lots of people saying, "Yeah, they 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 definitely matter." But uh, how and to what extent and in what realm is is the the big kicker there? I no, think. I thought I thought it was good. We got we got tangible. We got clear. We said, "Okay, here's how I think about it, my practice." Here's in spite of all of this interest and education you and I have both done in terms of this perspective on the nervous system's role, when do we still go back to say, okay, that tissue quality that I feel, or is it when am I actually working with that? Or when am I thinking about tissues per se and not mm -hmm. just the nervous system? Yeah. And I always, and this to me also comes back to assessment because I always put a lot of emphasis on identifying whenever you can, if there's a pain and injury problem that seems to be localized into a particular tissue, trying to identify the potential involvement of certain types of structures that might uh, orient or determine how you're going to most effectively address that problem. Yeah. Uh, and uh, like right now for me, for example, I have a an anterior shin splint problem in my left leg that yeah. started just five days ago or so. And I have that, that kind of always found this description interesting and it's probably not relevant for people who don't live in a snow environment, but do you know how the snow squeaks sometimes mm -hmm. in your fingers or in the, under your foot when you're walking with it, there's that sensation in the tendon. Uh, and it feels like, you know, the tendon and tendon sheath are not m sliding efficiently with each other. And like when I pull my foot in dorsiflexion, I can feel the, the grating and grinding sensation in that tendon. And to me, that's a relevant aspect of the tissue mattering of having a good sense of like, there's something that's going on there that needs to be somehow or other um, uh, enhanced, thawed, or some you know, smooth, sanded down to make it uh, inject some WD-40 in there maybe or something like that. Uh, interesting narratives. Yes, interesting ways of thinking about that. Yeah, but something about that to me, knowing that that represents also where the primary pain is in that tissue, I, it matters for me to be thinking about it in those terms to get it get it fluid again. I think. Okay, yeah. I'm with, okay, I'm with you. I mean, it's such a great, uh, such a clear example. I'm so tempted, Whitney, to dive into that with you because uh, there's so much there. You described yeah. a really clear tissue. Uh, type of signal. It's like a, a something that's happening in the tissues. And you also described it as a sensation. And then in metaphorical terms, in terms of snow and WD-40 and everything else, which is, those aren't tissues, by the right. way. 
Yeah. Are, you know, those are, that's your, that's how you're perceiving it. And those are going to upregulate or downregulate your yeah. experience of it as well as inform your reactivity or acceptance of what's happening as well. Yeah. Or the remedies you try, the practitioners you go see, you're going to be, sounds like you're going to be looking for either a good snow removal company or a, uh, you know, a lube job, WD-40. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. So well, we'll see how that goes. Yeah. We'll see how that goes. So <clears throat> after that, where we where did we went? We went to well, Mitchell's book, episode eleven, stretching right. the tissues or the truth. We really dove into Jules Mitchell's book. Yeah, uh, I love her book. Yeah, yeah I, uh, what is I'm pulling it off my shelf. Yoga biomechanics. Yeah, Yoga got biomechanics. it yep. last summer when I when it first came out. Uh, I learned of Jules Mitchell. I think it was in a another podcast um, in um, the Liberated Body podcast. Uh, it was where I first heard an interview with her, and I thought, oh, this is wonderful. And I had uh, followed her work and I knew she was working on this book with Handspring, by the way, uh, as the publisher, and uh, really loved her consolidation of the current research and thoughts yes. about stretching because um, this is one of those things that I think has been um, misunderstood and not uh, needs to be kind of updated with some of better understanding of what we know now about both neurophysiology and biomechanics of tissue yes. elongation processes. Um, so... That's right. Now you turned me on to that. You, you alerted me to her book. Yeah. And I agree. She did such a good job of laying out the science of stretching, but then also the controversies around stretching in a way that really, it, you know, she does have a point of view. It's not like we're all, any of us without bias, but she lays it out in such a clear way that you can really see how the debates are going, yeah. proceeding over the years and, you know, get some usefulness from that uh, meta perspective. We're seeing all sides of this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So for those who have not uh, taken a look at it, I will really highly recommend take a look at the book. Again, as the book is Yoga Biomechanics and Jules Mitchell is the uh, author. Handspring uh, is the publisher. Use that yeah. TTP code. That's right. There you go. Yeah. Uh, Jules is a uh, yoga practitioner, yoga teacher, and massage therapist also. So she's got a, um, a really good perspective on on how these things play into what we're doing individually with the people that we're working with and in a lot of different, uh, in a lot of different ways. So, uh, Yes. So well, after there, that, yeah, yeah we're, we're, we, we need to do we need to take a exhale or a drink of water or anything here. This is like a, we're up to episode eleven. We got twenty eight, so I'm going to try to keep it short here. Yeah. So uh, uh, I think at this point we were starting to realize that we were all getting inundated and we were all in the storm. <laughs> so uh, we did an episode on the cytokine storm of yes. COVID nineteen. Yes. Um, it's it that was uh, episode twelve. And this was uh, about the emerging role at that time that we understood that inflammation had in some people's reaction to being infected with COVID-19, that it was actually their inflammatory overreaction that was causing the problems mm -hmm. uh, as much as the virus or more than the virus itself. Now, that's an interesting thing has come out since then. There was a bunch of interest over the summer in bradykinin, which is a peptide. The high, it seemed to fit through, and this is actually emerged through some detailed computer modeling of the symptoms that people were getting from COVID, what would explain the symptoms. And it turned out that Brady Cannon uh, abnormalities could be explaining a whole lot of what was going for people even better than the cytokine storm theory. Now, I did a little bit of updating on that this morning to see, and it, there hasn't been a whole lot more published on that since that came out. But it, it, it's people are still 
uh, understanding COVID reactions in at least in a certain percentage of people as inflammatory overreactions. And that mm-hmm. needs to be, turns out, managed in much of our progress and survival rates for COVID has come from an increased understanding of that COVID storm kind of idea. And yeah. how both to turn down the uh, immunoreactivity at certain points, but also turn it up or boost it. So it's not it's not like we just want to boost the immune system. That turns out to boost the inflammatory storm too, the cytokine storm. So it's that careful modulation of timing and when things are turned down and turned up that seem to be getting yeah. results. Yeah. It has been interesting to see that, you know, we've, uh, despite the huge increase in case numbers, that, that we've been able to be more successful with some treatments um, than we were initially with at the outset. And I think a lot of that is, as you mentioned, uh, applying those things that we've learned about how to manage that storm. And what is going to also, I think, be interesting is to to see how this plays out with many of the things that we're finding to be the long-term effects of people who have gotten over the initial illness of yeah. COVID-19, but have lingering coagulopathies and other types of uh, inflammatory issues and bronchial things, respiratory distress that will linger on for quite some time. It will be a curious thing yeah. to see. There's to be a certain percentage of people who do have persistent symptoms and like other things such as Lyme disease or things, the, the, the jury is out about, is this still the organism at work or is this an effect in the immune system? Of having, yeah, having dealt with that organism, yeah, or actually, it's not an organism in the case of a virus, but you know, is it the pathogen rather, or mm-hmm. is it uh, the the immune system's reaction to the pathogen? And we're, we'll learn more. Stay tuned. Yeah, right. So, uh, and where do we go? Well, we talked about inflammation after that in our next episode. We talked about that one a little bit already. Anything else that you wanted to say nah, about? That's good. But then yeah. we, you know, because we were so, you know, starting starting to really face the COVID question. The question was, do we keep doing this? We did an episode 14 on uh, all the things you and I were hearing about the reasons people were thinking of quitting the profession at that time. Could Mm -hmm. I earn what I need? Are people going to come back to me? Uh, You know, don't want to be exposed to the illness themselves. Am I going to lose my skills in the meantime? And I'm so glad to announce that we've handled all those questions so well and that we can put that well behind us and just turn the page on that whole topic. What do you think? Uh, uh, lovely. Yeah. <laughs> but I think, um, I think we are still in the midst of a, bo- a bunch of that. I, you know, it's, what to me has been um, sort of sad in looking back on this is knowing there's, you know, at that time when we did this, and I don't remember the actual dates, but I'm thinking along the lines that this was somewhere around June, maybe July when this episode came out. Um, since that time, you know, I have, I know of a number of, um, you know, Good friends, colleagues, very highly successful practices, clinics with multiple people in them that just, you know, can't keep it going. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if the, the length of time of the impairment has been too long mm-hmm. and uh, they've not been able to, to do that. And it's, it's a tragic loss for our field. But, uh, you know, sometimes out of adversity comes a new venture somewhere or other. So I like to think that some of the people who've had the biggest challenges here will find ways to to make those things work for themselves um, as a result yes. of that. But, uh, right. I just want to say, you know, uh, a kudos and, and, and a really uh, special shout out to all the people who've worked through all kinds of adversity mm-hmm. to keep things going, whatever they've chosen to do, whether that's pivoting their practice to doing more remote things with their clients or, you know, engaging in the, the people who've, who've been back in the clinic doing stuff with lots of PPE gear and, you know, much more time in between people and all the things that they've had to do. 
a lot of people have really, really put forth a lot of effort to try to make things happen and keep it going. So that's for sure. This, this field of, of hands-on manual therapy is so absolutely crucial. And, and I, I hope we will be able to make, make our way out of this thing without too much uh, impairment, long-term impairment from, from this time period, but it will be certainly making a mark on us. Well, and then all the ways that people are adapting in the meantime yeah. as well, because some people are seeing clients, some people are not seeing clients and there's everything in between. So it's, it's this, the kudos to the people that have found something else to make ends meet or are still looking for something else to make ends meet until they get back to the place where they want to practice like they want. Yeah. And there's one interesting thing too that I remember in that episode was some uh, data that came out of a project I did with ABMP back uh, 2014 or so that people with a part-time practice, people with another source of income, turns out it's not that they liked bodywork less. They actually were happier with the size of their practice, with the quality of their practice. On average, there was a really significant uh, increase in people's satisfaction with their bodywork practices when they had another source. So in, in some ways, uh, no shame in doing that and you know, traveling around the world. I see that elsewhere as well, that some of the people that love their work their most have other ways to uh, make ends meet and other ways to keep their passion, their love for the work alive. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. So, uh, and after that, um, you had a fascinating discussion with Robert Schleip um, yes. about fascial things. Yeah, fascial researcher and uh, former Rolf Institute faculty and now head of research for the European Rolf Association, as well as uh, University of Ulm, working in the laboratory right with fascia. I got to talk to him about a retrospective of his views and his research on fascia and how his initial message was, hey, it isn't just the fascia, it's a lot the nervous system. Mm -hmm. has actually been picked up far and wide. And although he's seen as somehow the catalyst for a lot of the interest in fascia uh, science, he, and he rightfully has that uh, reputation, he was also the guy that said, hey, it isn't just the fascia. It's actually, we need to think about how the nervous system yeah. is responsible for a lot of the changes we're seeing as a result of hands-on. Yeah. Yeah, I think one of his um, the pieces that he had done that was uh, the two-part series that was in the Journal of Bodywork and Movement Therapies a number of years ago um, that everybody, you know, so many people have cited and, and gone back to yes. and looking at the, that was one of the early pieces that was introduced in the idea of contractile cells uh, within the fascial tissue. Mm -hmm. Perhaps the most impactful thing to me on there was uh, his comment in there about how the myofascial system was the most richly innervated yes. uh, tissue structure we have in in the body then that that really makes you think about the role of what we're doing with touching people and, and how tremendously impactful we can be on the, on the nervous system in, impacts because of uh you know, those effects as well so um and, on uh, average and, and on the average fascial septa and fascial membranes are about six times more sensitive in terms of nerve endings than muscle mm -hmm. tissue yeah. So the fascia is about six times more innovative than muscle tissue itself. So. Yeah. And if we're, you know, we're looking at, uh, there's been a lot of focus on, and we've touched on this a little bit, you know, the biomechanics of the perceptions that we've had in the past that we were pulling, stretching, elongating fascial tissue to change a lot of these patterns. Right. In fact, um, you know, we may be doing things that involve the fascia, but it may be a lot more about the neurological responses that are occurring within there uh, more than the, the mechanical um, elongation of the, that tissue, which 
doesn't seem to elongate very well. <laughs> or at least not permanently. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, so. Well, it was about this time that we had Benny Don. Yeah. Episode 16. And this was uh, shortly after uh, George Floyd was in the news and in all of our attention and all of our, you know, this the shocking uh, news and the reactions that came out of that whole time. And so Benny kindly offered to join us on the episode and talk about his experience as a leading or originator in the, uh, the specialty of sports massage. Mm-hmm. And then also talk about his perspective as a black man working in this field and stories over the years. And that was, that was enormously moving for me to sit with him and you and talk about these yeah. things. Yeah. He has certainly been uh, such an icon in our field and a, and a, you know, a, a guiding light for so many different individuals, but more than anything too, just to see uh, an example of, of working through tremendous difficulties and adversity, which um, he has faced uh, because of that throughout his field. It's, he's always an inspiration to, to listen to and talk to about that. And he's just a really good guy. I really yeah. have always enjoyed uh, hanging out with him a great deal. So that was, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. We got a lot of feedback about that episode. Uh, all sides of the, the issue, all perspectives, but yeah. it was interesting to me too, that that was the episode where people had the most concern about typos in the podcast. I know there's much bigger issues here at stake, but that was the one where the typos in the podcast really irritated people. And we got uh-huh. really upped our game on those. Yeah. Plans, uh, so was that in the transcripts in the transcripts of the podcast. Yeah, yeah that's right. right. Uh-huh. Yeah. So uh, always a learning process for us as well. So, yeah. Right. No, the, the transcripts are there for every episode. And it turns out they are much more widely used than even I would have imagined. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then after that, we, we were starting to talk about um, an episode we said, who charts our path? This was sort yes. of, I think we were getting a little bit into the fact that we don't have traditionally academic structured instructional programs. And a lot of us are sort of deciding for ourselves what it means to, you know, push ourselves farther to uh, further development in our profession, because it's kind of up to us in terms of what we were doing. That was sort of, the, the overall theme of what we were tackling there. Um, yeah. What else did you pull out of that episode? Yeah, it was, it was uh, you know, uh, the question of medically necessary was in that one too. Uh, is what yeah. we do medically necessary in terms of, say, uh, restrictions on COVID as particular? But then, yeah, the question that you've been raising repeatedly here is how do we sort this out in terms of the different levels or the different focuses or different orientations that people take in this profession? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. Blair Kennedy joined us uh, along with Kemi Balogun for episode 18. And they came and they talked about a research project they're doing on uh, how COVID has been affecting different health practitioners, including massage practitioners, Project COPE. And they also spoke at depth and in a, in a very informative and moving way about issues of diversity and inclusion in our field. Yeah, some great examples from both of them with Kemi being a, a student of uh, Dr. Kennedy's and uh, talking about how some of the teams they were putting together to look at things, they were recognizing there was a great need for diversity in these uh, academic teams exploring some of these projects. And and uh, 
so both this issue for me, this issue and the one with Benny were were all were very valuable wake up calls to look at those parts of myself that I don't recognize. Oh, there is something in there that um, you know might be perceived uh, as you know lack of equality, diversity, et cetera, whatever that I might not think about. You know the unconscious bias things that we have going on. So it was really helpful to have those some of those things pointed out to us in in that episode there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The episode 19, what about risk? Because the question of going back to work was in our minds. And then also just the day-to-day existence with the risk or the, or the disagreements we even have about the level of risk we face mm-hmm. uh, working with COVID. Ruth Werner, Ruth Werner joined us as a third uh, voice in that conversation. It was great to have her perspective as well. Yeah, and uh, we talked about a lot of things, and that's that's also been the one that people have uh, uh, gotten back to me personally about. And so that really helped me think through these questions because I think the premise I was coming from—I know we each had a perspective—but we can't eliminate risk in life, and yet, so how do we decide intelligently or effectively what our level of risk is in different activities? How much we need to mitigate? What risks we take, and which risks we don't take? And then especially yeah. in an environment where we don't even agree all the time on what the risks are. Yeah, clearly it's, you know, would be one of the situations where it was <clears throat> would be ideal if there were some black and white rules that we could say, you know, have to be followed exactly. But there's this so illustrates the gray area that we have to operate in uh, so much of the time. And and it was really good to to have a lot of those things pointed out. And like you said, recognize that there's all kinds of facets or aspects of risk that we deal with and and everybody's different just yep. really different for everybody yep episode 20 we well we dealt with cervical pain pain in the neck and we kind of brainstormed it's fun to pick your brain about what you think how you think about that what you do around that mm-hmm. uh effective ways we found to work with neck pain some of you you found some assessments and things like that yeah and um this was sort of like for us, that was kind of a, a, me, a means of kind of getting back into some sort of more clinical applications after exploring a lot of the other stuff that we had been doing with COVID and the diversity issues and things like that. And it was uh, uh, always um, fun to get back uh, onto some of these things that I think are at the root of why we do the things that we do. And uh, um, yeah, there's some uh, interesting things that we talked about both in terms of treatment applications, you know, stretching strategies and other other types of uh, things addressing some of the common neck complaints because it is uh, so very common for most all the people that come in to see us is something that they want to have focused on. It and, turned uh, out that the next episode's topic, uh, the upper back, pain in the upper back is really common too, a lot more common than I would have expected. But in my little bit of polling or market research, that emerged as an area that a lot of people feel in their own body. Maybe it's all the time on Zoom, but especially getting from their clients about what needed addressing. So we did a episode twenty-one on the upper back thoracic spine pain. Yeah, and it is interesting. We I think we acknowledged in that episode too that there seems to be a sort of a a skip bias in a lot of the research. If you go down the spine, lots of stuff on the cervical region, lots of stuff on the lumbar region, and a real paucity of information uh, related to thoracic spine pain, especially musculoskeletal thoracic spine pain. And of course, we don't have as many types of problems there because of the way the rib cage and the skeletal structures are, um, you know, limiting some aspects of movement in the thoracic region. But there's also, I mean, 
how common is it for us to come in and our clients say like my upper back hurts, you know, it's just all the time, you know, that, that people are saying those things. Yeah. So. Which goes in the face of that idea that it's not as prone to problems because again, people are the practitioners were coming to me saying, I'm hearing yeah. a lot about this certainly yeah. as well. Yeah. And I think that also illustrates what we spoke about earlier with a sort of structural bias in many of the fields that do a lot of the research in this area. They're just sort of skipping over the soft tissue pain that lots of people feel in that area and be looking at, well, well, there's not that many spinal structural problems there. So yeah, we won't focus so much attention on it. You've probably had that. The client that comes says, hey, I went and saw an uh, you know, ex-practitioner, fill in the, the blank of what kind of practitioner. Yeah. And they said, oh, it's just soft tissue. Yeah, right. <laughs> just soft tissue. Or it's just arthritis or something like that. So, yeah. That was like episode, uh, that was episode 21 where we did our first handout. And that's been a successful experiment. There's been a lot of downloads of that. The free handout we've put out for some of those more technical episodes where we actually yeah. shared some of the techniques we're talking about and some of the outline of the conversation and some of the resources too. So that's still available. Right. Episode 21. And then after that, you had a conversation with Gil Headley on... Uh, some anatomical stuff, the fascia fuzz and furor, the sort of yes. debate around his whole process there. Right. It was fun. It's fun just to catch up with him. He uh, came and studied at the Rolf Institute when I was a teacher there, and I was one of his first teachers there. And I remember him catching my eye as a particularly bright thinker and mm -hmm. interesting and fun person to be around. So it's we've had a long conversation going for many years now. It was fun to catch up with him. And one of the topics there was his uh, fuzz speech, which he gave on YouTube. And I remember him, I can't remember, texted me or something. Hey, I just did this. Check it out. It's so cool. Well, he caught a lot of flack for talking the way he was talking about what he was seeing in his dissections and mm -hmm. saying that this fuzz he was seeing is probably what happens when you go to sleep and you wake up, you start moving, the fuzz goes away. And then, and some of that taken out of context, uh, people really went after. So he, he, uh, did a bunch of work to clarify that and it, you know, to, to say things that were probably uh, less controversial or at least more practical. And he got, we got to talk about that some as well as just what else he's up to and some yeah. fun things there in that episode as well. Yeah. And then we had a very interesting discussion with another guest uh, after that, which was our discussion with Mark Bishop on expectations, um, yeah. which I had, you know, expectations at the outside, like, I wonder what we're going to get into here and was really fascinated with where we went on that discussion about how the expectations uh, impact our work, um, yep. what we're doing, and that with our clients Dr. as well. Dr. Bishop here. is an annual therapist, and he was a presenter at the San Diego Pain Conference last year. In fact, I think he was the, probably one of the only manual therapists that presented there, but his, it turns out that his research backs up what other research has shown, too, that if a client or patient thinks a treatment is likely to work, they're more likely to be right. And in fact, their expectation that a, that its particular treatment will help is one of the most significant factors in them gaining benefit from that, maybe more even than the type of treatment that they're getting, that their expectation of that helping ends up correlating much better with the results they get than yeah. the treatment. Yeah. So yeah, good stuff uh, off that particular issue with him. And he's, he's um, really brought up some interesting and, and fascinating means of us thinking about how we can take advantage of that, I thought, uh, with the work that we're doing too, and in our dialogue, uh, in the, the nature of what we, the way we talk with our clients too, about uh, those kind of expectations. Yeah. And what, what kind of things predispose someone's conditions and the things we have control over, things we seem to be aware of. And I should uh, I should just give a plug to ABMP. They're not one of our official sponsors of today's episode, but they've been a 
long-term and faithful sponsor of this first season, and they have kindly published uh, some of the excerpts from this conversation with Dr. Bishop and with Dr. Slipe as well. Mm -hmm. So Massage and Body Work magazine, you can find some of the key excerpts there as well for these conversations. Right. And then we dealt with some plantar foot pain um, issues in the next episode and um, trying to uh, also do some things there associated with AVMP on that particular episode as well. That's right. They uh, had a summit, a CE summit, where you and I got to teach together virtually. That was pretty cool. And uh, this ep- this uh, episode was the audio version of that teaching together, and the video version with you know some bit of extras was on there, uh, the ABMP's website. We did another handout for that one, and uh, it was all about plantar fasciitis, right? Yeah, we tried to delve into a number of other potential um, causes of plantar foot pain, some other you know nerve entrapment problems, and other things that may mimic plantar fasciitis and often be misinterpreted uh, as that. So that's, uh, uh, that's one yeah. of the episodes where I learned a bunch from the work you've done around that and different sorts of uh, potential things to think about when you're treating someone that shows up and says, Hey, I got plantar fasciitis. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so um, some really good uh, other things to so check out. And then we had also handouts and other uh, additional resources on that one too. So those are available too through the site. If you go back and take a look at those, if you're, if you're interested. So, uh, so we went from the foot to the psoas, I think, right? Was where we were next. That's right. A natural progression. Yeah. Uh, up the body, episode 25, is psoas work safe? Is it necessary? What do people think they're doing when they work with the psoas? Why would they do that? And is that even a you know, good idea? Yeah. And, uh, some of the controversies there we explored and we actually did – of a spoiler alert here, we did actually put together a handout that shows some of the things that uh, we do with the SOAS as well. Yeah, we got a good bit of feedback on this um, particular issue of, of people saying, hey, thanks for bringing some of this stuff up. I hadn't really thought about that that way. Or like I was, you know, just like I was, you know, they were saying, hey, I was taught to do this, what you're saying here with the treating the soas, and I didn't realize that there were some potential problems that might cro- crop up. So a really good uh, example of, of being aware of the impact of our work, because it is not, uh, it isn't benign. You know, there are potential detrimental effects of you know, some of the types of things that we do. Um, and this is important to, to be aware of this. So as especially, uh, there's some, some real serious potential complications that could, could arise from that. That's right. Yeah. The next episode, uh, Boytek Kakowski, a physical therapist and a teacher in the anatomy training system, joined me for a conversation. I've been hosting him as a part of our training where he does movement for manual therapists. He calls his method Zoga. And he and I have been wanting to catch up and talk about some of the things that led him to develop that form and some of the ways that us as manual therapists can take care of our own bodies. And I really enjoyed that uh, time we had to talk about that. Episode. Yeah, that was a great, great episode. I enjoyed listening to that. And and uh, yeah, it was great too to hear some of your discussions too about the way in which manual therapy was perceived in these different cultural contexts, uh, him being from uh, Europe and the way that some of that stuff was perceived in Eastern Europe uh, as opposed to the way that we're doing it here. So that was that was also very fascinating there. I, I love that interchange of the different perspectives we get from just working in different contexts as well. Yeah, exactly. 
And we went from there back into the neurological realm once again with the little man in the brain. I was talking about the homunculus. Um, That's right. Yeah, the, the famous uh, diagram of the distorted man that you have. There it goes in your brain that maps out the amount of brain dedicated to the different parts of your body and turns out that it's not even. There are some places like your face and your hands that have huge amounts of brain dedicated to their sensation and their movement. Mm -hmm. So what are the implications for that? That's been in a very influential map in terms of understanding about pain and the way we work. Uh, and that, you know, not just the descending modulation piece, but the cortical smudging idea or the ways that our work might help clarify those body maps or the idea that there's like a, the brain is like a coloring book and maybe the touch we use is recoloring or coloring in the blank spots in this, in this neurological coloring book. Yeah. Look at the history of there and some of the ways that this map may or may not actually reflect what's going on in the brain. Some of the uh, simplifications or perhaps even misses. That came about in the formation of that theory. Yeah. And uh, fascinating things for us to think about in terms of the, again, the sensory, the impact of sensory uh, systems uh, in, uh, throughout the body. And we talked a little bit about this too, with so much sensory innovation uh, in that homunculus in the hands, yeah. and we work with them all day long. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that happens to us while we're doing the, the therapeutic interventions, I think, as well. So that's it's fascinating to think about it going going both ways there. It's true. That's right. We're, we're hands-on therapists. And then how plastic that is. It turns out not to be fixed at all, that the mapping changes radically. The, the, the studies that have looked at how that changes over time show about a two-week threshold where it's very different, observably different within two weeks of using your body in a different way. You have a different, yeah. different size uh, portions of your brain dedicated to bodies. So you get more yeah. brain that goes to the places you're using and less of it to the places you don't use. Yeah. So cool. It was good stuff. Uh, fascinating stuff. Uh, digging in there. That and then uh, to, yeah, to episode 28 where you were speaking with Cal Gates. Yeah. So uh, Cal's wonderful friend of mine for, for many years. And uh, we were delving into this ish, these issues of kind of back to what we talked about with the, the split uh, in the, um, in the profession essentially, but looking at how for those massage therapists or other healthcare or manual therapists who are working in a healthcare environment, um, how do we determine who is qualified to be doing that kind of stuff? Because our training programs and credentialing processes don't have a way to distinguish people who are just fresh out of school with a very minimal amount of training, and they might be thrust into a place where they're working in an environment with people with pretty seriously compromised healthcare conditions mm -hmm. and making important clinical decisions about that. And uh, we, uh, I think, are sort of tiptoeing around the potential for a lot of uh, challenging issues to occur if we don't develop some type of um, designations to determine what kind of training is necessary above and beyond our initial uh, training levels here. So that's, uh, that's the main thing that we were getting into in those discussions. And it's obviously a long way to go uh, on doing this. Um, I've been working on these issues for decades now, and I know many other people have been working on them even longer than that. So um, um, no easy answers there for sure, but uh, very important. Thing. Good conversation. I haven't made it quite all the way through. I've listened to most of it, but you get into some good ideas. Yeah. And I mean, as I think that probably the listeners of this podcast and then the people that come to our trainings are interested in going further with their work, are interested in dealing with, say, advanced level concerns, and, and as a result, do come into contact with people with 
uh, medical conditions or uh, uh, situations that require a certain level of training, care, and understanding. Yeah. So that's and that's just one of the topics you touched on. I know as well. Right. So it's been a great year. Uh, lots of stuff that we've gotten through there, and we sort of uh, nice little um, overview of these things. Um, anything else that you want to touch on before we uh, leave our our year in review here? Well, I mean, there's the next steps. I know that you got some things in mind. I got some things in mind. We're hearing from listeners. I'm I'm really got some fun interviews lined up. I know that uh, we're gonna do a year a uh, new year episode right now slated to be around the idea of like uh, resolutions and taking responsibility for our own health or the way our clients do or don't do that as well, which is a fascinating topic. We also have a uh, another episode, one of those hardcore techie episodes coming up about cervicogenic headaches mm-hmm. and a bunch of new fun stuff planning for the year. Yeah. And uh, I just got to say, uh, thank you, Whitney. Thanks for having this idea. This was your idea. You came and said, hey, what about what do you think about doing a podcast? And I was like, well, it took me about half a second to go, well, of course, especially <laughs> for asking me. So I'm so glad I have, and I'm so glad we're doing it together. And I, like I said, yeah. I've learned a lot and I've enjoyed a lot. And uh, I think I've finally learned how to mute my mic when I'm coughing and things like that. So maybe the editing isn't so hard, but I've, I've learned a few, a lot along the way as well. Yeah, there's certainly been a lot of uh, technical things that we have have gone through, but I, I too just want to say I, I have absolutely cherished our discussions because they have been very enriching for me, and also I think from the feedback that we've gotten from people, helpful for other people uh, out there. Also, to see um, in some instances us model the ability to have differences of opinion and not get into um, you know aggressive disagreements about things that we can have a lot of different perspectives and that really enriches both of us uh, about those kinds of things so it's a really I, I disagree on that point yeah. by the way that very one yeah. well you know you would I would no, I also appreciate it that we do we do come from different backgrounds or different people different perspectives but that ability to uh, both find the places we share, but also name and think through the places we are we differ, is yeah. uh, one that I'm working on for myself. So thanks for being my collaborator in that as well. Absolutely. Well, it's been a pleasure, and uh, we will keep it going as long as uh, there seems to be some interest in there, and and uh, people do seem to be getting some benefits. So we'll we'll keep it going for another stretch here. And uh, I also do want to say a, a big thank you to our our sponsors who have helped make this uh, uh, podcast work for us. So in particular, uh, Books of Discovery also is sponsoring this episode here for us today. They have been a part of massage therapy education for over 20 years, and thousands of schools around the world teach with their textbooks, e-textbooks, and digital resources. And in these trying times, this beloved publisher is dedicated to helping educators with online-friendly digital resources that make instruction easier and more effective, both in the classroom or virtually. So they like to say at Books of Discovery that learning adventures start here, and they see that same spirit here on the Thinking Practitioner podcast and are proud to support our work knowing that we share that mission of bringing the massage community enlivening content that advances our profession. So they invite you to check out their collection of e-textbooks and digital learning resources for pathology, kinesiology, anatomy, and physiology at booksofdiscovery.com. So we thank the team over there in your neck of the woods in Boulder for um, supporting the Thinking Practitioner podcast. Mm. So 
Thanks again to them. And uh, if you will, stop by our sites for show notes, transcripts, handouts, and any extras uh, information that you would find over there. Uh, you can find that stuff through my site at academyofclinicalmassage.com. And Till, where can they find that uh, for you as well? Advanced-trainings.com, right up at the top of the podcast link, advanced-trainings.com. If you got questions or things you'd like to hear us talk about in the coming year, we love hearing from you. Email us at info at thethinkingpractitioner.com or look for us each on social media. I'm at my name, at Teluca. How about you, Whitney? Same. I'm at my name at Whitney Lowe. And you can also follow us on Spotify, rate us on Apple Podcast with stars over there, wherever else you listen. Tell a friend, share the information. And again, thank you for your time and listening with us today. We really appreciate uh, you hanging out with us. So it's been a pleasure and uh, we will see you again in two weeks. See ya. Thanks, Whitney. Hey, that sounds good.